on Nancy Piercy's book, Love Thy Body, uh, dealing with many of the current issues that we're facing in our culture. But as I'm learning and as we'll see as we go along, these are really ancient issues. This is not new, it's just a new form. There's really nothing new under the sun. And so old philosophies and ideas recycle, partly because as sinners, our human nature is inclined uh, such that we want to be God and we don't want God to be God. And so we devise ideas and systems that put us in charge and attempt to dethrone God. But of course, that is futile. That always ends in failure. And we have a Bible that uh, is God's revealed will and where he tells us over and over and shows us over and over that through throughout history, he has always won. And we, uh, when we assume uh, the role of God will always fail. That's true for us individually. That's also true for entire nations. So we're going to be seeing that later today in the sermon series. Um, but for now, let's just take up where we left off last week, looking at how this two-story division that men have created, this division between upper and lower story, modern and postmodern, the, diff- the division between the body, which is a machine, is just material, is just matter, versus uh, the person, which is uh, the mind and the will and those kinds of things, that these are utterly separate things in the system that we're being presented, the worldview that we're being presented with, which is going to justify much of or attempt to justify much of what we see going on around us. It leads to a broken view of humanity, not a unified view, but a broken view. Many people find it easier to recognize the denigration of the body in arguments supporting transsexualism or transgenderism. Um, Just a few years ago, I mean, most of us were certainly aware of those things, but they have certainly been pushed to the forefront now. Transgender people often will say something like, I felt like I was trapped in the wrong body. I, being something separate from my body, was trapped in this cage, in this thing called my body. And, and so there was a sense of a mismatch between their physical anatomy and their psychological gender. And there's a name for this, gender dysphoria. Uh, most people assume that it must have some biochemical basis. Perhaps it's a hormonal issue. However, to date, no clear scientific evidence has been uncovered to support this notion. There are other possible explanations, aren't there? Have you ever wanted to do something that you shouldn't do? Why? The Bible tells us that we are rebellious as sinners, that we often want to do something just because it's forbidden, like in the garden, right, the forbidden fruit. You can eat of anything here. I'll give you everything, but this one thing you can't have. So guess what Adam and Eve wanted? And so there are other possible explanations for this. More importantly, transgender advocates uh, themselves um, actually argue the opposite. They deny that gender identity is rooted in biology. So they say, no, it's not hormonal and it's not Uh, chemical, it's not uh, anything like that, their argument is that gender 
is something completely independent of your body or your biology. And so, for example, Jessica Savino is a male-to-female transsexual, a six-foot-four-inch model and actor who created a documentary titled, I Am Not My Body. And that title really says it all. Savano posted a promotional video arguing that our core identity is completely disassociated from our bodies. I know I am not my body, he says. I am a spiritual being. In other words, the authentic self, the real you, has no connection to your body. The real person resides in the spirit, in the mind, in the will, and the feelings. The body doesn't matter. Matter doesn't matter. All that matters are a person's inner feelings or your sense of self. Who do you think you are? Who would you like to be? What are your desires? That should direct you, but not your body. This radical dualism accepts a modernist materialist view of the body in the lower story and a postmodern view of the self in the upper story. Now remember the material, let's talk about those to remind you of the differences. Modernism was a movement that basically said the universe can be explained by understanding that it's just matter in motion and we can use our five senses and we can interact with things materially. In other words, science has the answers We can weigh it, measure it, evaluate it, test it, all those kinds of things. But that's where the key to to reality is and how we should understand the world. Postmodernism was a reaction to that, saying, no, no, that that doesn't work, that doesn't explain everything. But in fact, this is so big, and we are so limited in our ability to know things. Science often gets it wrong and has to change their mind or discover something new and all those kinds of things. And so what we realize is because we're so limited that we can't really know anything for certain and no one should go around pronouncing the truth. So what's true for you might not be true for me. It's all subjective. It's all a matter of me living in this material world and then I, uh, this person, uh, is going to interpret it. You're going to interpret it differently than I do. That's okay. I'll leave you alone if you leave me alone but no one should be proclaiming any kind of universal truth. And so in this view, the body isn't seen as having any intrinsic purpose or telos. It's merely a collection of physical systems, muscles and bones and organs and cells that really provide no clue as to who we are or how we should live. Remember, that's going to be the abortion argument. So if At some point, yes, this is human, it's biological, it is alive, but it's not a person yet. It doesn't have any real value. It's just a material object, just like uh, this table is a material object. And I could use it, or I could decide I'm tired of it and sell it, or I could chop it up and burn it. Uh, I can do whatever I want to with it. It's just material stuff. It has no intrinsic value only whatever value I might ascribe to it or whatever function I might ascribe to it. And say, well, it's it's valuable to me because right now it's holding my cup of water 
uh, and it's useful, but if it loses its usefulness, we can just as easily toss it out, no problem, no moral issue there at all. And so our physical traits, give, according to this view, give no indication for the right way to use our sexuality. And back to the table. What can I use this table for? Well, I can set things on it. I could stand on it. I could uh, use it uh, for some other kind of a tool to wedge something or to, uh, you know, again, use it for some other purpose than than what I'm using it for right now. That's okay. It's up to me to decide its use. And if the meaning of our sexuality isn't something we derive from the body, then it becomes something we impose on the body, just like I do with this wood. It is a social, the term here is a social construct, and a social construct, you'll hear that is something, um, you hear that used in a number of uh, situations, but a social construct is something that exists not in objective reality, but as a result of human interaction. We could just get together and make up some uh, rules about uh, a game. Let's say we could create a game, a social construct, and, and discuss the rules. We could even write the rules out and play the game. Somebody else comes along, and let's say it's a game that we've heard of. Let's say it's um, um, 32. Um, and so there's some established rules. Who established them? I'm not sure. Maybe we've forgotten who established them, but there's some, probably could Google, there's some official rules for 32. Well, what if you had a group of people that got together and said, we don't like those rules. We're going to play a modified version of 32. We're going to play 30. Could you do that? Sure. Would it be immoral? No. Would there be some 32 people who don't like it? Maybe. But what's true for them might not be true for you. You can just construct your own reality. So a social construct is that it exists because humans agree that it exists. Therefore, sexual identity is reduced to a postmodern concept completely disconnected from the body. Again, you can make it up yourself or a group of you can do so. In other words, like Adam and Eve, everyone decides what's right for them. True for me might not be true for you. Now, there are many misconceptions surrounding what's called transgenderism. People often confuse gender dysphoria uh, with intersex, I-N-T-E-R-S-E-X. That is, people or individuals born with any of several variations in sex characteristics, including chromosomes. In other words, there's some malfunction in the forming of the body in the womb. It could be genetic, could be other things. So that is a separate issue than transgenderism, the point that I'm trying to make. Or they conflate gender identity with social roles. So, for example, do girls wear pink while boys wear blue? Um, do men go to work while women stay home and raise children? Those are gender roles, and that's not what we're talking about either. Um, the question raised by the transgender movement is much more fundamental. Do we accept or reject our basic biological identity as male and female? In this two-story worldview, the body, remember, is seen as irrelevant or even as a constraint 
to be overcome, a limitation to be liberated to be liberated from. And so we have a whole movement now of parents uh, who are going to raise their children gender neutral. We're not going to give them guns to play with or dolls or whatever. We're just going to put a room full of toys and let them choose. And we're not going to direct them in any way. We want them to decide for themselves. We don't even want any parental influence in this regard. And so uh, that's supposed to be a liberated view of the world. And of course, it is consistent, at least on the surface. Uh, it's not consistent with reality, but it is consistent with the assertion that we're just matter in motion and that we get to decide for ourselves what to do with that. Um, so, by contrast, and, and this is where I really want to put our emphasis this morning, is we need to be sure as Christians we understand a biblical view. A biblical worldview that leads to a positive view of the body. Biblical view says that the biological correspondence between male and female, God created man in his image, mankind in his image, male and female, he created them. And so um, this is part of the original creation, part of the original design, original telos or purpose. Sexual differentiation is part of what God pronounced as very good, morally good, which means it provides a reference point for morality. There is a purpose to the physical structures of our bodies that we're called to respect. And remember my illustration of the wrench that I held up. What is a wrench for? What is it? We all knew what it was. We could look at it and say, that's a wrench, and we knew what it was for. We knew what its purpose was. We also pointed out that it could be used for other purposes, but if we tried to use it for other purposes, like as a hammer, we would damage it. We would tear it up. It's not what it was made for. And so keep that in mind here as we talk about this biblical view. Um, A a teleological morality, a a, a purpose-driven morality, creates harmony between biological identity and gender identity. Gender has to do with your your conception of maleness or femaleness. um, And so the body-person is an integrated psychosexual unity in a biblical view. In other words, these are not two separate things, but they, they are necessarily joined together. Matter does matter. By the way, I ran across this. Facebook, I guess is one of the new ultimate authorities, has a list of 58 possible gender identities. There's an actual list of 58 different terms that you can choose from. And I'm assuming that it's just a matter of till tomorrow till we have 59 and 60 and... I assume it's kind of endless, whatever you can think up. It's up to you, true for you. Thus, we have LBGT plus. We just put a plus at the end, and you fill in whatever you want to add to the LBGT. Okay? So our view of the body depends on our view of nature, the nature of something. Do we see nature as essentially good, a gift from the Creator to be accepted with gratitude? Or do we see nature as the product of random, impersonal forces 
or a set of negative limitations to be controlled and conquered. Or, again, if we took a Darwinian approach, which really is, is the foundation of this, that says, again, we, have, we start with nature, we start with just matter in motion, and over time it evolves, but we can shape that, we can mold that, we can turn it into what we want to turn it into. It's clay, and uh, we are the potters. To make the Bible's positive message credible, we must, it must be communicated, though, not only in words, but also in behavior. We talked about how the gospel has to be not only spoken, but shown uh, by treating everyone uh, with dignity. Why? Why would we treat everyone with dignity? Even somebody that just looks really freaky, uh, you know, they're dressed up in something bizarre. Do we treat them with dignity? Yes. Why? Because we believe they're made in the image of God. Do they believe they're made in the image of God? Probably not. But we do. We want to be consistent with what we believe, with what God says about them. Whether they've bowed the knee to that and submitted to that or not is a separate question. But we need to show that kind of respect to God first and also to them. And so... um, Christians, unfortunately, at times use harsh and demeaning words or rhetoric to describe positions they disagree with, creating a negative stereotype. And, of course, the media is more than happy to broadcast that. I hate to see these roving reporters at some kind of a rally where there's always Christians. I saw a quote once that there's always somebody on your side that you wish was on the other side. Um, And that's who they always want to interview, right? And then uh, it helps if they have a really horrible, horrible grammar and and missing one tooth. And, you know, and they say, well, Christians, what do Christians say about this? And I think we ought to hang all of them. Oh, okay. They're wicked. And, um, and then that's what happens. So, um, for several centuries, Christianity was the dominant worldview in Western culture. And unfortunately, and sadly, uh, Christians, who are sinners, acquired some of the negative traits that are typical for any group that is in a dominant position. For example, not really listening to minority groups or answering their objections, which is what the Bible calls for, but shutting them down with moral condemnation, just wagging our finger Uh, But this was never right nor necessary. Scripture gives the intellectual resources to answer any question with confidence. Those who are the most confident are also free to be the most loving and respectful toward other people. What is the biblical response to the secular moral revolution that's going on? And again, really, I think this is, I say it's it's going on. It's ongoing because it's really been going on from the beginning, just in different manifestations. And so we have to start by expressing compassion for people who are trapped in a dehumanizing, destructive view of the body. There's a sense in which we need to have pity upon those who are trying to live in in an alternative Reality, it's not real. You're trying to create a world that doesn't exist and live in it, and that's hard. In fact, the scriptures say 
the, the way of the transgressor is hard. Um, so compassion, though, is not the same thing as approval. The two-story worldview is, above all, an attack on the body. We must therefore respond with a biblical defense of the body. We must find ways to heal the alienation between the body and the person that's been unnaturally divided. And so the starting point is a biblical philosophy of nature, the nature of man, the nature of the world. The Bible proclaims the profound value and dignity of the material realm, including the human body, because they are the handiwork of God. That's why biblical morality places great emphasis on the fact of human embodiment, including the incarnation of Jesus himself in the flesh. Respect for the person is inseparable from respect for the body. By the way, body modification, I think, is another way of disrespecting the body. That's another subject for another day. After all, God could have chosen to make us like the angels, spirits without bodies. He could have created a spiritual realm for us just to float around in. But instead, he created us with material bodies in a material universe. Why? Well, clearly, God values the material dimension, and he wants us, therefore, to value it as well. So Scripture treats body and soul as two sides of the same coin. The inner life of the soul is expressed through the outer life of the body. This is highlighted through the parallelism that's characteristic of Hebrew poetry. Just a few examples from Scripture. Uh, Psalm 63.1, My soul thirsts for you, my flesh yearns for you. Psalm 44.25, our soul has sunk down into the dust, our body cleaves to the earth. I was saying kind of the same thing. You can't have one without the other. Proverbs 4.21 and 22, keep my words in the midst of your heart, for they are life to those who find them and health to all their body. Psalm 32.3, when I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. There is an undeniable connection between body and spirit. When one's affected, the other's affected. So we get down emotionally when we're physically sick or tired, worn out, we're dragging. You see it on the face, right? We can tell people's moods by looking at their expressions and their body language, right? And so these are, these are connected. Likewise, if there's something emotionally going on in our lives, it starts to affect us physically. We can't sleep. We're not eating right. There's other ways it affects us physically. We might get sick. In one sense, our bodies even have primacy over our spirits. After all, the body is the only avenue that we have for expressing our inner life or for knowing another person's inner life. We use our mouths. We listen. We use our senses to perceive what's going on with a person. 
Um, the body is the means by which the invisible is made visible. The holistic biblical view is confirmed by everyday experience, so that's the world we actually live in. When you eat food, you don't say, my mouth is eating. You say, I'm eating. When your hand is injured, you say, I'm hurt. The two-level division of the human being is not true to our inescapable daily experience. The Bible doesn't separate the body off into a lower story where it's reduced to a, uh, to a biochemical machine. Instead, the body is intrinsic to a person. And therefore, it will ultimately be redeemed along with the person, a process that begins even in this life. And so a biblical ethic is incarnational. We are made in God's image to reflect God's character both in our minds and in our bodily actions. And so there is no division. There is no alienation. We are embodied beings. That's who we are. At the time of the early church, this biblical view was radically countercultural. So just like the world we live in, this biblical view is counter to what we, to those who are opposing it. But that was true at the time of the New Testament. Ancient pagan culture was permeated by world-denying philosophies such as Manichaeism, Platonism, and Gnosticism, all of which disparaged the material world as the realm of death, decay, and destruction, and the source of evil. Gnosticism, an ancient heresy, I think, was present in the garden, essentially conflated the two doctrines of creation and fall. Most heresies are built on the overemphasis of one truth to the exclusion of another. So Gnosticism treated creation as a kind of fall of the soul from the higher spiritual realm into the corrupt material realm. The goal of salvation then would be what? To escape from the material world. To leave it behind, to ascend back to the spiritual realm. And that's true of many other religions. If we could just get out of this body. Gnosticism taught that the world was so evil that it had to have been a creation of an evil god. In this cultural context, the claims of Christianity that come along are nothing short of revolutionary. For it teaches that matter was not created by an evil sub-deity, but by the ultimate deity, the Most High God, and that the material world is therefore intrinsically good. In Genesis, there is no denigration of the material world. Instead, it is repeatedly referred uh, it reaffirmed or affirmed to be good. And God saw whatever it was he made and he said, it is good. Humans are presented as beings whose personhood includes being part of the earth from which they were created. I mean, this really goes deep. Um, the second chapter of Genesis said, God formed Adam from what? The dust of the ground. 
The name for humanity, Adam, is even a pun in the original Hebrew, meaning from the earth. Adama means earth. It was his walking, animated clay that God pronounced very good. I guess we are claymation. It was this embodied, earthly, sexual creature that God described as reflecting his own divine image. Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness. The early readers of Genesis knew the text was making the astonishing claim that all humans, not just rulers, are representatives of God on earth. What really set Christianity apart in the ancient world, however, was the incarnation. The claim that the Most High God had himself entered into the realm of matter taking on a physical body. In Gnosticism, the highest deity would have nothing to do with the material world. By contrast, the Christian message is that the transcendent God has broken into history by being born as a baby in Bethlehem. The incarnation is genuinely physical, happening in a particular time, in a particular place, in a particular geographical location, I love that in the scriptures we read things like Luke 2, 1 through 3. And it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This census first took place while Quirinius was governing Syria. So all went to be registered, everyone to his own city. So the birth of Jesus is attached to a specific date, a specific event, and a specific place in history. John 1.14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. In the, early, in the days of the early church, this was really Christianity's greatest offense, greatest scandal. That, that's why the, apostle repeatedly, the apostles repeatedly stressed Christ's body, that in Him all the fullness of the deity dwells in Him bodily. 1 Peter 2, 24, that He bore our sins in His body on the cross. Hebrews 10, 10, that we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ. And John even says that the crucial test of orthodoxy, true Christian faith, is to affirm that Jesus has, quote, come in the flesh. This is, these are direct uh, assertions being made in the face of Gnosticism, which was the prevalent view. When Jesus was executed on a Roman cross, we might say that he, quote, escaped from the material world, just as the Gnostics taught that we should aspire to do, right? He gave up his spirit. But what did he do next? He came back in a bodily resurrection. To the ancient Greeks, that wasn't spiritual progress. That was regress. Who would want to come back to the body? 
The whole idea of a bodily resurrection, according to 1 Corinthians one twenty three, Paul says, was foolishness to the Greeks. Even Jesus' disciples thought that they were seeing a ghost. He had to assure them that he was present bodily. Luke 24, 39 and 43. Look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. He then asked for something to eat. And he took it and ate it in their presence to demonstrate that his resurrection body was genuinely physical. They were not seeing a ghost. Not only did Jesus rise from the dead, but he also ascended to heaven. Christ taking on of a human nature wasn't a temporary expedient uh, to be left behind when he had finished his work here on earth because he was taken bodily to heaven. His human nature is permanently, therefore, connected to his divine nature. So finally, what will happen in the Christian view at the end of time? God isn't going to scrap the idea of a material world in time and space as though he made a mistake the first time. You may jump ahead and imagine a lot of of popular Christian notions about heaven and about the future is that we're disembodied, floating around on clouds um, in some kind of a mystic, misty way. But God is not going to scrap the idea of a material world. The biblical teaching is that God is going to restore, renew, and recreate it, leading to a new heaven and a new earth. And God's people will live on that new earth in resurrected bodies. From the time of the early church, the Apostles' Creed has boldly affirmed the resurrection of the body. And so it's true that at death, humans undergo a temporary splitting of body and soul, but that was not God's original intent. And so you've heard me mention this before. We see a body in a casket and somebody says, oh, that's not really him. I'm not saying you should say this. You shouldn't be rude. That's probably not the time or the place to say anything, but you can at least think, oh, yes, it is. At least it's part him. I saw him last week at the hospital, and uh, we chatted, and that was him, and that's still him, looks just like him. Um, It's not all of him, it's some of him. Death rips apart what God intended to be unified. So why did Jesus weep at the tomb of Lazarus, even though he knew he was about to raise him from the dead? And that's because the beautiful body was split apart from This unnatural divide. The text says twice that Jesus was deeply moved in spirit and he was troubled. And the original Greek word here, the phrase, actually means furious indignation. Jesus was indignant over the death of Lazarus. He wept at the pain and sorrow caused by the enemy invasion that had devastated this beautiful creation. The Gnostics saw death as freedom from the encumbrance of the body. Scripture portrays death as something alien, an enemy that entered the creation uh, with the fall, and yet it is a conquered enemy. 
As Paul writes, death is the last enemy to be destroyed. In the new creation, body and soul will be reunified as God meant them to be eternally. And so when the Bible speaks of redemption, it doesn't mean only that we go to heaven when we die. It means redemption, in fact, of all of creation. Paul writes that the whole creation suffers pain and brokenness, but that it will be liberated at the end of time. The creation itself will be liberated from the bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and the glory of the children of God. The gospel message is that the entire physical world will be transformed. Humans won't be saved out of a material creation, but will be saved together with the material creation. Let that soak in. That is so profound, so powerful, so transforming, so radically different from the view that most people hold to. In the great divorce, C.S. Lewis pictures the afterlife as recognizably similar to this world, yet a place where every blade of grass seems somehow more real, more solid, more substantial than anything we have yet experienced. Jesus' resurrection is an eloquent affirmation of creation. It implies that this broken world will be fixed in the end. God's creation will be restored. You and I will live in a renewed creation in renewed bodies. At the end of the great story, the great drama, we'll not be floating around in heaven as wispy ghosts. We'll have physical feet firmly planted on a renewed physical earth. The Bible teaches an astonishingly high view of the world. The New Testament concept of bodily resurrection was completely novel in the ancient world. In fact, it was so astonishing that many simply denied it. In the second century, many Gnostics claimed to be Christians, but they adjusted biblical doctrine to fit their philosophy. Of course, we're familiar with that. Many in the church still do this kind of thing today. We don't like what the Bible says. We'll just throw it out, ignore it, twist it, do whatever we need to do to get it to fit what we want to believe. And so the Gnostics denied the incarnation. They taught that Christ was an avatar from a higher spiritual plane who entered the physical world temporary. He he just appeared to be physical. He wasn't really physical to bring enlightenment, and then he would return to a higher state of being. They insisted that he was not really an incarnate human body, nor did he really die on the cross. Spirituality had nothing to do with this world, but only with escape to a higher realm. Today, secular culture is falling back into this dualism that denigrates the material realm, just as ancient pagans did. Again, nothing new. As in the early church, it is Orthodox Christians who have a basis for defending a high view of the human body. So who invented matter? The influence of the Gnostics even created a Christian version of the two-story division. And today, what, we, what happens in the, in, the, in the church is what we call the two-story division secular and sacred. 
Secular is the lower story. Sacred is the upper story. It's a mentality that treats the spiritual realm as good and important while demoting the physical realm to a necessary evil. And that's why you could stay home this morning and just be part of the invisible church because that's, that's the real church. And this physical church that's located at 340 Northeast Stallings Drive or wherever else churches are assembling today, that's not the real church. The real church is the invisible church, the person, not the body. We have secular, spiritual, sacred and spiritual division. This, this split is a major reason many Christians don't enjoy the power and the joy, joys that are promised in Scripture. They go to church on Sunday but don't think Christianity has any relevance for the rest of their life. That's my spiritual life. When I read my Bible and when I pray and when I go to church and then here's my secular life over here. C.S. Lewis writes, there is no good trying to be more spiritual than God. God never meant man to be purely a purely spiritual creature. He likes matter. He invented it. Job said, in my flesh I will see God. So contrary to asceticism, the Bible does not treat the body as the source of moral corruption. Instead, it says sin originates in the heart. In Scripture, the word heart doesn't mean our emotions as it does today. It means our inner self, our deepest motivations, as we see in these passages, Proverbs 6.25, do not lust in your heart. Their hearts are greedy for just gain, Ezekiel 33, uh, Psalm 81. God says, I gave them over to their stubborn hearts to follow their own devices. Jesus himself gave the definitive statement in Matthew 15, 18 through 19. The things that come out of a person's mouth come from the heart, and these defile them. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, and slander. Ezekiel sums up the biblical teaching by saying humans harbor idols in their hearts. The mainspring of sin is not that we have bodies, but that we, um, but that we put things besides God at the center of our lives and turn them into idols. Paul unpacks the idea by saying that those who do not worship the transcendent creator will worship something in the created order instead. In his words, they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and they worshiped and served the creature rather than the Creator. When we put anything in the place of God, that becomes our idol. And that's why the Ten Commandments start with the command to love and worship God above all things. That puts things in the right order. When our hearts are centered on God, only then are we empowered to fulfill the rest of the commandments that deal with behavior, what we do with our bodies. And we're out of time, so we'll stop there. Father, we thank you for giving us a right view of the world and of ourselves and of you. And had you not revealed yourself, we would be groping in darkness, trying to figure all this out, and yet we can't because we're so limited and so ignorant in almost, well, really everything. So we are grateful that you've revealed yourself, not only in your word, but more importantly, in your Son. Thank you for finding us, rescuing us, transforming us, redeeming us, 
body, and soul. Bless us now as we come to bow before you and worship, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.